0: In the spring and summer of 1940, the French Army and British Expeditionary Force were defeated by the German Army. The German Army had become so formidable because of technological advances such as the development of the tank. The Allies were unprepared for this, and as a result, they were quickly defeated. Other German advances included mobile vehicles and close air support of ground forces. The evacuation of the British from Dunkirk and the final defeat of France left only a thin line of English fighter planes between that island nation and total defeat. While events unfolded rapidly in Europe, leaders of the United States Army knew they were utterly unprepared for this new type of mobile warfare. Army experts had been trying to develop a combined light weapons carrier and command reconnaissance vehicle since the end of World War I, but with limited success. In June 1940, the military compiled a list of requirements for a new truck to replace the cart and mule as the Army's primary method of moving troops and small payloads. This new vehicle is now commonly known as the Jeep today. Little known is the remarkable story behind their creation. My guest Paul Bruno has spent 20 years researching, writing, and studying early Jeep history He spent countless hours telling this story to the world, first for the big screen and now twice in book form. The culmination is the true story of three auto manufacturers, the American Bantam Car Company, Willis Overland Motors Inc., and the Ford Motor Company, who accepted a challenge to build pilot models of this new type of vehicle. The journey to production was full of challenges and took until 1941. The story of their journey is one of legend. They overcame incredible odds to produce a vehicle that would change the world and one of the four other pieces of equipment that Eisenhower said he and his most senior officers regarded as among the most vital to our success in Africa and Europe in World War II. This is an episode for history buffs in particular, especially those interested in World War II. I had a lot of fun with Paul. He's a funny guy and Paul does a really great job of laying out the story and digestible bits of information. You know, it's a funny one because you don't think it should be that exciting, but it's really an interesting story um, and one that's just never really talked about. And that's that's what Paul's trying to do here is just get this story out because it's an amazing story. But find out for yourself, and I hope you enjoy The Polar Bruno with Jay Burch. Hello, and welcome to the With Jay Burke Show. My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs and want to come away with knowledge about subjects that aren't always easy to break down, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. Paul Bruno is with us. Paul is a highly knowledgeable expert on the earliest history of the origins, design, development, and implementation of the iconic Jeep vehicle. He spent more than 20 years researching, writing, and studying early Jeep history. He visited key sites in this story, including the United States National Archives and combined his knowledge of project management and history in his first book, Project Management and History, The First Jeep, which was published in 2014. His new book, The Original Jeeps, further tells the story of early Jeep history and continues his journey into the depths of this important, inspirational work of human ingenuity. Paul, thank you so much for being on the
1: show. Glad to be here, Jay. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I'm very excited because I'm a big history buff. Obviously, World War II is kind of like one of the holy grails of history. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't really know about this story. So I did do a little research, but I didn't want to do too much because I kind of wanted you to teach me and the, the audience about it. So this is your second book, correct? And, and it just came out last year?
1: Well, actually, I have three books. Okay. I have the project management history, of the first Jeep, which, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, tells the story of how the very first Jeep was created from a project management perspective. Then I did some additional research, and it's very, very detailed, and I'll get into how they're – this book and my second book, the original Jeeps, uh, where I did more research, and that book covers in detail the first three Jeeps that were created called the Jeep Prototypes, which were – the Bantam Reconnaissance Car, the Willis Quad, and the Fort Pygmy, and they're very, very detailed historical books. So I just came out this year with a third book, the original Jeeps and Pictures, which tells the story of all seven of the original prototypes, and there was seven in total, in uh, images to make the story more accessible to people so they can get a good overview of what early Jeep history is about then if they want to read the detail, at least up to, for the creation of the first three, they could purchase the original Jeeps uh, or, and, or the, the first book, the uh, project management book. So uh, we could, we'll talk about all three books and how they all came about, but that's where we stand. And I really love the, the latest one because had a couple of people talk to me about it. I said, Hey, I read the whole thing in an hour. Yeah. And the you know, picture's worth a thousand words. It's very powerful. So, really excited to talk about all three with you as uh, you guide the interview.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess what I want to ask is how did you come up with the idea for the first one and then how did you get into the second and third book from there?
1: Great question. That's exactly how my history went. Yeah. So, you knew that. So, I, I this is why fight. you're professional. Don't try this at home. But <laughs> seriously, so what happened was back back about 1999. Back in the day, um, uh, I'm leading my exciting life, and it's it's very uh, barely amazing. I've made it to as old as I am. That's a total joke, by the way. So I'm watching the History Channel, and as they had this big, do. yeah, right. They have the big rigs of combat, right. So I'm like, yeah, all right, we'll watch that. So they talk about the Jeep, and it's something I never heard before. They say the very first Jeep was created by a bankrupt car company in Butler, Pennsylvania. And I'm like, what? And so I watched afterwards and got a basic, just general overview of what had happened, which is exactly what happened. There was this bankrupt car company in Butler, Pennsylvania, which is 30 miles northeast of Pittsburgh. And I've been there numerous times now. Great great city, great people. And what they did was, at the time, they were the premier small car company in the world. And the Army went to them, and we'll get into that. And they did build the very first one, and they built it in the astonishing time frame of 49 days. Wow. Which really caught my eye. And then even better is they do, they built it in 49 days and delivered it to the Army with a half an hour to spare on the last day that they had the chance to deliver it. And my late wife and I at the time were writing screenplays, and I'm like, this would make a great movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and Definitely. so. I started, that started to me, that was the genesis, good word, of my journey with early Jeep history. And then, like you said, it grew from there. So I won't go further into that. We'll kind of go through the story, let you ask the questions. But that's how it started, literally a miraculous situation in Butler, Pennsylvania in 1940 is how it got my attention. And I wanted to make a movie about
0: it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny when I look back at that time, obviously the Nazis and the Blitzkrieg and how fast they mechanized. We were like totally unprepared at the time. It was amazing how quickly, once we got into the war effort, we could manufacture. And I know some of the history was, obviously, you had the Great Depression, and that probably made things a little difficult in the 30s, as far as trying to ramp up to the when the war effort was starting and, and things like that. So can you give me a little background background? leading up to that point? Uh,
1: again, you're you're totally spot on. So what happened was exactly, I, I define early Jeep history as three segments, okay? And they are the end of World War I to October 1940, then October 1940 to March of 1941, and then March of 1941 to just before we got into war. And that's where my area of expertise is. I call it early Jeep history. Once the war starts, there's tons and tons of books about the Jeeps. But what happened is exactly that. Now, the history of the United States, which most people do not know now militarily because we were a republic, was we fought a war. Then we, after we get out of the war, we demobilize completely. Mm-hmm. We have a very, very small army. Then the next war comes, and we have to mobilize again, which takes a bunch of time. And then we fight the war, and we demobilize, okay? And that pattern had gone through the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, Civil War, Spanish-American War, World War I. So after World War I, we demobilized. Our army in the 1920s was basically nothing. Then, like you said, in the 1930s with the Great Depression, there was literally no money for the army. Zilch. Roosevelt and his administration spent what money they have on domestic relief programs while simultaneously like you said Hitler came to power in Germany and remilitarized very quickly in the mid to late 30s but and Japan also was marching at the same time and, and with their army by the late by 1940 yes we were completely unprepared for war we were still using the mule for to transport uh, supplies to small payloads yeah. and to start the story, In May 1940, so we're totally unprepared. In May 1940, May 10th, Hitler invades the Low Countries. He's conquering basically Western Europe. Third week of May, there's a conference at a place called Camp Holabird, Maryland, which uh, doesn't exist anymore. It's outside of Baltimore. That was the main vehicle procurement center for the quartermaster at the time. Hmm. And At this three-day conference, they're talking about this problem that we have nothing to replace – the motorcycle with sidecar and the mule and the horse for carrying small payloads, mechanized. Nothing on the drawing board. Nothing zilch nada. Right. Simultaneously, before that, the American Bantam Car Company had hired a guy named by Charles Payne in February to knock on doors at, in Washington to try to drum up business because American Bank American Bantam was bankrupt. So this Charles Payne dude was this consummate salesperson. So he bangs on doors from. Mar- February, March, April, May. Miraculously, and you're going to hear the words miraculously and amazing continuously throughout this, <laughs> <laughs> God, this interview. He he and, and he goes to the Office of the Infantry, which had been looking for a vehicle along with the cavalry and a few other branches of the Army at, during the late 30s. And he says, I'm looking for a guy named Colonel Howie who had developed this thing called the Howie, mechan- Howie Machine Gun Carry, which we talk about in the books. They say, he's not here, but the guy that does our motor vehicles is a a guy named Colonel Oseth. So Payne goes to his office and sits in in his windowsill. Colonel Oseth is at this conference on the third day of We've Got Nothing. He drives back to Washington, D.C., walks in his office, and there's Charles Payne sitting in the windowsill of his office to talk to him about vehicles and small vehicles for the Army. (laughs) And... It's like, how does that happen? Yeah. Okay. So, so there is a start. I'll, let me, I'll continue through the June 6th memo, and then we can pause. Yeah. So Ose, uh, Payne says, I'm looking for Robert Howie," and OSA says, he's not here. But if you want to talk to somebody about vehicles for the Army, I'm the guy, okay, for the infantry. So they start chatting, and he says, basically, Bannon's vehicles won't work, and Bannon's vehicles had been rejected by the Army, just didn't handle military. In the late 1930s, and I have that document in the books. He says, "Okay, if you want us to, you want to work with us, I will tell you what we want." So what they did is, over a two-week period, they came up with a general set of characteristics for a vehicle—just a general set. It's a two-page memo. The actual two-page memo is published in my book, *The Original Jeeps and Images*. And they come up with this memo. It, ba- it has a list of characteristics, and it's—and they send it through the Calvary to get okayed by the Adjutant general to start a procurement, okay? And when is the memo published? I think I said it. June 6, 1940. Okay, hmm. here's your first test of history. What happened four years later to the date on June 6, 1944?
0: Well, it's uh, D-Day, isn't it?
1: D-Day. Yeah. You can't make that up. D-Day. Exactly four years to the day before the very memo, that every single jeep that's been ever been built came from this memo and i discovered that and when i was researching i could not find anything before this memo and i couldn't understand why the reason is there wasn't anything that memo and i'll explain how i found that out in a minute is the genesis of the jeep procurement and we'll talk about the steps afterwards that i document in detail in the book as we continue the interview wow all
0: right so I mean, the army and Roosevelt, well, first of all, they're watching this situation go down. So so before Pearl Harbor, you know, Roosevelt knows from conversations with Churchill and other leaders that he is going to have to get involved at some point. I mean, I know we did the Lend-Lease and all that kind of stuff, but... Remember, when he would run for president, he had to keep running as someone who was going to keep us out of the war. That, that was who would run against them as anti-war, anti-war Republicans. Or I think there might have been a, actually an anti-war Democrat who went, went against them one time, too, if I remember. Real
1: correctly. quick, real quick on that. There was a huge, exactly, isolationist movement. Yeah. Going hearkening back, and I detail it this in the book. The George Washington's No Foreign Entanglements, yep. and people had been very disillusioned by our, at least a large majority, which was led by Charles Lindbergh and there was a lot of other famous people in the isolationist movement, and that did hamper those two things exactly what we're talking about in 1940 and prior, Roosevelt and the administration doing a lot in terms of building up the military, yep. okay? They didn't really even start really start building up the military till after his reelection because he did run on. I kept this out of the war and the isolationist movement also hampered people you know, from Congress to fund things because, you know, they had to run for reelection in 1942. So there wasn't a lot of money around uh, to do anything. So, yeah, they're looking at this thing. So what happens is they need this vehicle. You have this serendipitous meeting between Charles Payne and Colonel Oseth. And I, and I love this part of the story, okay? Again, just amazing. So O'Seth and the infantry in 1938, 1939 had, had identified a vehicle, again, detailed in the books, called the Marmon Harrington that they wanted for their vehicle to transport weapons, okay? Hmm. Because that's infantry drew and transport troops. Well, the Quartermaster Corps, which procures things for the army, they had messed that up. So the infantry was not happy with the quartermaster in 1940. So what does Colonel Oseth do? And I learned this. I'm going to bring this in now. What really brought the detail, which had never been published before in both my books, during the war and just after the war, there was a court case called Willis Overland Motors, Inc., the Federal Trade Commission versus Willis Overland Motors, Inc., where Willis, who we'll talk about a little bit later, had been saying they created the Jeep. And the government sued them to say they were not. Well, I found this case in the archives, and it literally was the treasure trove, use a term used early, holy grail of early Jeep history. During this court case, they had amazing amounts of documentation. But even more importantly, they had deposed every single person in detail that had anything to do with the creation of the Jeep in 1940 1941. So here you have a exceptionally rare situation in history where in front of me, 4,000 pages of testimony from the people who did it only years after they did it. And more importantly, what they call this is oral history, you know, as a historian, you know, oral history. A lot of times they interview the people long after the things have been done. They didn't do that here. But more importantly, it was a court case. They were under oath. So they really weren't at liberty to kind of embellish what they did or kind of spin it. They had to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. So going to that, Colonel Osseth at the trial in his deposition, and I'm reading this, you know, and all this stuff is all over the place. And I had to organize it. Listen to this one. This is beautiful. He's so mad at the quartermaster. He says, I put in that June 6 memo, a requirement for an armored face field for the driver. Specifically, So the recruit, the, this procurement would go to the ordinance department and not the quartermaster, because anything that had armor in it at the time went to the ordinance department. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm reading this going, hey, nothing ever changes. He's bad at the quartermaster. So I'm going to have ordinance do it. Yeah. So I, I'll skip to the next part of the story just to finish the thought. So it goes over the ordinance department, Jay. And here's what the ordinance department goes. Yeah, we don't we don't procure vehicles. We don't have a clue. They don't have a clue what to do. They're like, what do we do? And they go, you know what? There's this American Bantam car company in Butler, Pennsylvania that knows a lot about small cars. Why don't we go visit them and see what they might be able to tell us? So on June 17, 1940, which I think was a Wednesday, they go, we're going to go visit Bantam's plant in Butler. And they're, and they're coming from Baltimore, okay, you know, Camp, uh, you know mm-hmm. Washington, D.C., and talk to them about this new vehicle. So they go up to Butler and have what's significantly one of the most significant two day meetings in the history and Jeep history and all of history. Okay, and they talk about the vehicle with Bantam, the committee from the ordinance department, and they literally get a good idea of what they want to the point of they drew a concept drawing, which I actually held in my hands in the archive. It's in I'll see if you could see it in the book here. Uh, you might you know, you don't publish it, but you just got to see this. This is awesome. So, okay, so I, I don't know if you can see it or not. Oh, I got my blur on. Um, yeah, uh, I got to turn my blur off. Anyway, I had to buy the book. They called it the Beasley Brown drawing, and it was this general concept, and you could kind of see it's not really a jeep, but they got the drawing. They got a general idea of what they wanted to accomplish, and the next day, the key, the key uh, part for the vehicle would be the front axle because they wanted four-wheel drive in this. And at the time, four-wheel drive was revolutionary. So there's one company in the whole country that could possibly build this axle. It's called Spicer Manufacturing. So they had these representatives come from Spicer and talk to them about the axle in terms of what would be needed. So after they broke up this conference in Butler on June 20th, they had made significant steps from the June 6th memo only in a few weeks to kind of figuring out what kind of vehicle they wanted. But I just love where it goes to the ordinance department because Oseth is so angry at the quartermaster, and the ordinance just goes, Yeah, we don't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> so June, we're at June 20th, 1940, in the story, and that, and again, that's all detailed. And there's just something in history would have never found out if they hadn't had the trial. Why in this June 6th memos, this armored face shield? Oh, and I and I, I included all this testimony. O'Seth admitted to that at the trial. He called it a lawyer's trick, and that's what he was trying to do. So without – it would have been lost to history if they hadn't had this trial. Why is this requirement in the first place, and why didn't it go to the ordinance department, who ended up in Butler on June 19th, 20th, 1940? <laughs> yeah, that's just such a Love weird – Love that.
0: I guess that's all a history, though. It's just weird coincidences and strange, to use your word, miraculous things that, that
1: Miraculous together, things so. happen.
0: What ended up happening just to move forward on that in that lawsuit? What was the end result?
1: Oh, they they came up with that. The very first Jeep was created by the American Band of Car Company and the Army in June through September 1940. So they ruled against Willis because Willis was claiming they had created the Jeep because yeah. they, were, they were the ones that eventually got the Jeep contract, which we'll talk about toward the end of the show. And they basically said no. You, it was it was Bantam with the in cooperation with the army. They really worked together. And I use the word created. I don't think the jeep was invented because nothing in the jeep individually in those requirements and what would come later were new or hadn't been done. It was the combination of them yeah. into this brilliant vehicle which was new. So that was what the, the court came up with after four thousand pages of testimony and uh, hundreds and hundreds of exhibits. So.
0: How long did that take you to go through?
1: Oh, a, lot of, a long time, but yeah. it's a labor of love. I love archive stuff. I, when I'm dealing with archives and original documents, almost just the way I'm wired, it's, it's a gift, I think. I can feel the people. I can feel the history yeah. when I'm reading the original documents. And it, just, it doesn't matter what it is from history. Now, don't ask me to fix anything because everything's got to be balanced in life, Jay. And I am the least handy man that was ever <laughs> born. So I've got the good news is I can do all this history stuff. The bad news is I can't fix anything. And my late wife used to say, you know, you can remember who died on like May 10th, 1864. But you can't remember what cat food to get at the grocery store.
0: Yeah. I'll come clean that I am only handy because um, out of monetary necessity. When I bought my first house, I found that I could be very handy. Before that, no. No, I couldn't. I couldn't fix anything. But, you know. It's <laughs> all right.
1: I just, I just laugh about that because different, different skill sets, as they say. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, everything's on YouTube now, so eventually you can, uh, <laughs> you can find it. Find yeah, it
1: go, speaking go, of pictures. You go on a quick tangent on that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm an old geezer, and the young people like you. It, someone commented to me uh, five, ten years ago, like, the young people never really ask anybody for directions or help. And they said, "You know what?" And this is this is serious is a, a serious point in the sense. They could because they just look everything up on YouTube. Yeah. Now the good news is, late in the game, I finally figured that out, and I'm actually doing that also. So I'm with you on that. Yeah. And it is really handy. It's like Google anything, do it on YouTube, so on and so forth. End of tangent. But that that's no. a, That is a very a legitimate point.
0: Listen, it's the worst thing in the world for somebody like me sometimes because. It's just a thought pops in my head, and, and, you know, you used to have to sit there and ponder it and try to figure it out, or you could go to the library if you really wanted to know something about some. but now it's any question in the world that I have, or or let me put it this way, sometimes I have a question, and I'm like, I'm never going to be able to answer that, but now all I do is is have my phone, and I pull it out, and I ask the question, and then I go down a rabbit hole.
1: Two final points on that. One, for the listeners, this is the official meandering part of yes. the interview that Jay See? promised. Promise. And two is, I did Google, "Can I get a life?" and it came back no. So <laughs> there wasn't a there wasn't a video on that. I was like, what? Anyway, end of meandering. But yes. we, we, you promised him some meandering, so we yeah. had to do it.
0: If I don't put at least you know one minute of meandering, then I it- then all my legitimacy goes away. So I'm glad you helped me
1: out with that. Hey, um, if I can, I could bring you from after the Butler conference through the next segment of the early Jeep History Store if you want.
0: Yes. Why don't we go there? Because so,
1: so what happens after that, the ordinance department goes back and they're reviewing everything that they have. And... Finally, the Army bureaucracy kicks in and says, uh, hello, people, uh, this is going to go over to the Quartermaster now because this does not need an armored face shield, and the Quartermaster is the one who procures vehicles, and Ordinance Department goes, thank God, we're, we're out of it. So the procurement, un- unlike what Colonel Oseth won, it goes over to the Quartermaster uh, Yeah, mid about third week of June, just after the uh, Butler conference. But... The Quartermaster learned something from the failure of the year before. In three weeks, they developed a series of detailed specifications in a drawing. In three weeks, by early July, with the help of American Bantam, and they included Colonel O'Seth and a Calvary representative in detail, or they really included them in the development of the specs, so they would not have the same problem they had before where they didn't get what they wanted. So by early July nineteen forty, you had this detailed seventeen page specification called ES475, which the complete specifications in the appendices of both the first book and the second book, detailed a build to, and then this concept drawing 08370-Z, which is in both, which is in actually all three books. And that concept drawing, not a concept drawing, that drawing, you really can start seeing a Jeep vehicle. It's really amazing. And I just hope people, when they read the books and they see that drawing, it's like, wow, they've gone from nothing in May to a two-page memo in June 6th to early July. We'll go to July 8th or 9th to basically where they can go out and get someone to build to this. And they used like a wood mock-up on the floor. They they also uh, a chalk drawing. And then the best story is they took an old twenty horsepower Bantam engine, stuck it in like you know, threw it in a, like a an axle and stuff like. Tried tried to run it up a hill, and they like, ended up halfway and went boom, nothing. And Osa testifies and goes, oh, I think we're I think we're done right here. This isn't going to work. And, and Charles Payne was there when they did that test, and he goes, he comes run up and goes. Don't worry about. It, don't worry about it. We're already looking at a more powerful engine. And Osa says, and Charles Payne saved the whole procurement again right there. <laughs> <laughs> They're running up the hill with a twenty horsepower engine. Boom. I so, was.
0: I was going to ask about the first prototype how it went when it was done. So I guess that's kind of my answer.
1: Well, that was the. That well, was, that's the. Uh, that guy. was the first. I wouldn't call that the prototype. You're on the right track. That was the first kind of test to see what might work as they were trying to design it and it didn't go well. And they did and they didn't know that they needed a more powerful engine. They went with 40 horsepower in both the BRC and the Willis uh, and the Ford Pygmy. Uh, and, and it's another story you probably won't get in today, uh, Willis, they had a more powerful engine and they had a 60 horsepower engine they put in theirs, which was good news and bad news for them, which we'll talk about. So. We're looking good. That things things are moving along. Unfortunately, Hitler has now conquered France by July. The Battle of Britain's got to start, and I think that's the other thing that makes this early Jeep history in nineteen forty and forty-one so dramatic. Again, for the war, is the background of what's happening. We've got nothing. Right. We're trying to create this miraculous story to get the Jeep, which jumping ahead was literally one of the major weapons that helped us win the war. Well everything is going wrong in the war in europe and in the pacific cuz japan was in china and so on and so forth so that adds to the tension adds to the dramatic situation which i also thought would be very helpful besides all the other conflict that you had for the movie cuz the backdrop is like you don't get this done you guys have got a big problem yeah cuz you you got you're not going to have anything and the you know the germans are just too superior so on and so forth. And Japan Japan didn't necessarily have superior technology because of a different type of war in the jungle, but you were still going to need some type of movement in the jungles and on these islands. And I'll jump ahead. And that's one of the amazing things about how this all got created and you ended up with the Jeep. How do you come up with a vehicle that was that, that rugged, where you could use it for almost anything, and that durable and um, I'm, uh, the word's escaping me. Um, versatile is the yeah. word I'm looking for. That it could be in every theater. Desert, jungle, plains, snow, ice, sleet, anything. The perfect vehicle for a world war adaptable to any theater. Amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And just to, to go back a little bit, I remember seeing, you know, through back channels when Churchill would send... I guess letters or just have ways to get to uh, to Roosevelt he would always be warning him he's like we need help if we don't get america involved you're going to be fighting a united western europe nazified yeah alone you're yep. going to have no friends there and i can't even imagine the situation with the generals and everybody knowing really what's coming down the pike what you're talking about too is is in the pacific they knew that was going to come to a head, too, at some point.
1: Yeah, what's amazing is the fact that due to funding shortages, maybe they just didn't have – because World War I was fought in a very small area when you think about it. It was yeah. a World War, but 80% that large, was just this Western Front where they basically fought each other with – millions upon millions of shells and everything else in this small area yeah where this this war was going to be worldwide multiple theaters so i'm not sure they knew in 1940 how big it was going to be because let's talk about where they went next in the jeep procurement and that'll answer what i'm talking about in terms of the, the scope of what this procurement they've got the concept drawing they've got the specification es-475 and there was some muddle in the procurement rules where they could have gone out for a negotiated contract strictly with Banum Eh, but the Army decides, the quartermaster, you know what? Nah, let's go out for a bid. So they decide to send this thing to 135 companies and give them 10 days to put together a bid proposal. All right, And even in the memo, they said, we don't expect to get too many and there's really only one other prospective bidder that we know that might come forth in this. So, of course, this catches Bantam completely off guard, okay? They don't have any resources, nothing, to put a bid together. So they call up this guy, Carl Probst, who was a designer well-known. He was about 60 at the time, to come and help them. And Probst basically tells them at first, no, I'm not coming because I need to get paid, and you have no money. The next thing you know, Mr. Probst gets a call from a guy named Bill Knudsen, who was the head of the War Production Board, hired by Roosevelt away from GM to get this done. And the auto industry was a very kind of everybody-knew-everybody everybody kind of thing at the time. Yeah. Knudsen calls up Carl probes and says, you know, Carl, I got an idea for you. We really need this vehicle, so why don't you head over to Butler and give him a hand? Click. And Carl Probst says, yeah, you can't really say no to Mr. Knudsen. So probes heads over to Butler. And so the procurement, they got to have their bid documents done by June twenty. 20- the bid opening is June 22nd. The bid goes out on uh, July 22nd, excuse me. The bid goes out on July 10th, 11th, right? Probes doesn't even show up till like July 18th. He literally works through the night with a guy named Harold Christ, who, had been, who was a genius, who had been working on the project for Bantam throughout the whole thing. So Christ and Probes get together. Probes draws up the whole documents, okay? They get them all prepared. And on Sunday, Sunday Ju- July 21st, the day before Monday, July 22nd, they drive down to Baltimore to review the documents with Charles Payne. Now, the Army had put in this weight requirement. We won't go into great detail here, but it's going into great detail in the book of let's see now. And I'm a project manager for my first book, and this is requirements that you hate. They didn't ask any of the manufacturers, Jay, how much this thing should weigh. So they just decided on their own, the army, they said, you know what, this is gonna be between a half-ton truck and the motorcycle with sidecar. The latter weighs about 500 pounds and a half-ton truck weighs 2,000 pounds. So this thing has to miraculously weigh 1,300 pounds. Nobody could build a vehicle for that. Why am I bringing that up? They go down and they meet with Payne, who's the salesperson, right? Now, Carl Probst and Chris, they're kind of these honest, engineering, design, mechanical guys, right? They put in the form that the vehicles was going to weigh 1,800 pounds. Payne blows a gasket and tells them, and, 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 and uh, Carl Probst was relating this 20 years later in an article that I found. He blows a gasket and says, you can't put that in at 1,800 pounds. They'll reject our proposal right out. They literally called a stenographer up in the middle of the night. She came over and retyped the whole – the bid forms, and they put in – and Carl Probst says in 1962 – we put in twelve hundred seventy-three for the weight. I found their actual bid document, and on the front page, under twelve hundred seventy-three pounds. I actually held that in my hands. Wow! So they they get all the documents set, and they rush over to the or the bid the bid presentation ten o'clock, July twenty second, nineteen forty. I love that story. You see that in a movie? The personographers there open them up. You can't put twelve hundred, 1,200 pounds in the weight. I love that story. So uh, that that was um, – that's how we got to that point. And um, I think I forgot the meandering. I think I forgot the reason – oh, I know what it was. Oh, we got to talk about the contract. Don't let me forget to tell you about how many they wanted when we get to the contract. Okay. So – which we're going to come up to next. Let me just bring that up. I'll bring that up. So they're bidding for a contract that was going to be for 70 vehicles. That was it. Right. Right. Exactly. It's like you're going to be fighting a world war and we're just looking for 70 of these things to try to figure out what we want. So they're sitting there and, and, they, and Bantam shows up at the bid meeting. And the only people that showed up were Bantam, a, a company called Crosley, which did not bid because the other amazing thing they put in, which you already talked about, is they, the Army wanted this thing built in 49 days. Well, prototype in 40 days. Uh, let me see. Where did we pull that out of the air? Uh, You know, we need we need uh, 49 days. It's got to weigh 1300 pounds. (laughs) And Ford was there and Ford said, we're not bidding because nobody can build this in 49 days. Now, the other bidder, a very famous company who would end up being very famous in Jeep history, Willis Overland was there and they had put together a bid proposal. But they had kind of got caught off guard. and This is detailed in the second book, the original Jeeps. So they had a timer proposal bid and Bantam was the only one that had a full bid package with a drawing and everything. Uh, they open up all the bids, and a guy named Colonel Laws, who was the main vehicle procurement guy for the Army, they open them all up, and then he did the car dealer thing. He goes, car salesman, he goes, I'm going to go in the back, and we're going to review these, and I'll come back out. And then we'll see if he can create a better deal. So he goes back and he reviews them. They had them sweating there, and it's like this really hot day because if Bannon doesn't get this contract, they're done. They got nothing. They're bankrupt. They're all gone. They're, they're in history, Right. Colonel Laws comes back out and says, "Um, well, people, Willis has the low bid. And Carl Probst says the Banner people almost fainted. But this Colonel Laws, he had a theater for the dramatic. I think he just wanted to see what would happen with the people. And he says, but Willis says they can't build the vehicle until 75 days. Bantam says they can build it in 49 days. So with penalties, Bantam, the penalties that would go to Willis for that makes them higher than Bantam, so Bantam gets the bid, gets the award. Now, Jay, I want to ask you a question. It's not a difficult question. Do you think Bantam really knew if they could build that thing in 49 days or not? No way. No yes, way. my man. No way. They were lying through their teeth just like they did with the weight. They had no idea, but it's like, well, we're bankrupt. Why not? Yeah, yes. sure, we could do it in Go 49 for it. days. Why not? We could do it. So so Bantam got the contract. And we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll finish this segment up with they finalized everything uh, for the contract by August 5th. And that was when the clock started ticking. They had 49 days from August 5th, 1940, to build the vehicle. And that would be September 23rd, 1940. So there they go. They only got 49 days.
0: How much was the uh, bid? How much did they pay?
1: Well, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know how much they said they could build the vehicles for. The contract ended up being. I think their bid was for around one hundred and seventy-one thousand for <laughs> to build the prototype. And if they've got if they, and that the prototype was built successfully, delivered on time, and accepted through the testing, which we'll talk about, they'd get the contract for sixty-nine more. So the total, their total bid was for one hundred seventy-one thousand. Which miraculously, they knew that the chief of staff, George C. Marshall, famous name, right? Yep. It allocated 175000 for it. Gee, we came in on just underneath. Amazing how that happened. Yeah, yeah. So, that, so, so whatever, 170 vehicles into 171000 which was how much they said they could build each vehicle for. So then there's a copy of the actual, at least the first page, the actual contract, and all three books, actually.
0: Did they actually make the weight?
1: Oh no, we'll talk about that. Okay, uh, I was okay. saying there's no way they made that weight. <laughs> yeah, just just make a note to remind me of that, when we talk about the testing, and I'll tell you how the story, how it was accepted on the weight. That's another one of those. You got to be kidding me. So, yeah. anything else, or I could continue on uh, to how the build went. Yeah, get, go into the build. So basically, Carl Probst says in his memoir, says you know he basically started with a horn button, built everything around it. They had a guy named Harold Christ, who I've mentioned, mechanical genius. Christ had on his staff a guy named Chester Hemphling, who was a jack of all trades, could do anything. Mm-hmm. And he had another mechanical genius called Ralph Turner, Sr. Uh, Ralph Turner, Sr., Chester Hemphling, and Harold Christ, I, I, I truly believe, built the first vehicle with, in consultation and guidance from Probst. Because Probst really wasn't a hand-on guy. He was a designer. Okay, But that was the core team, the four-team. Um, and there's a lot of angst about that in early cheap history where Carl Probst probably gets more credit than Chris Hemfling and Turner. And I've tried to correct that and at least get those three, the credit those three gentlemen truly deserve. So I found a memoir from a Turner, a Hemfling, Chris, and built the build chapter about how they worked around the clock, problem after problem, so on and so forth for those 49 days. And harkening back, they're waiting on Spicer to deliver the axle. So, but I met a guy in Butler named Bob Brandon, who just passed away, one of the many wonderful, nice people I've met from Butler. He had a roll of photographs that the band of team had taken while they built the first Jeep. And he allowed me to put them in all three books. All right. So, you have these pictures of the vehicle actually being built, and they put a calendar day. On the particular photograph. So you have a picture of the chassis coming together and it says September 10th. Where do you get that? That's cool. It's awesome. So I not only had the detail in words, I had the actual thank you, Bob Brandon kindness that he allowed me to use. And and obviously I credited him and I'm grateful. He was just so kind to let me use them. Um, So you see see what they're doing, the work, and then you see the pictures of the thing starting from the chassis rail all the way up to things almost finished, okay? And what happened was, building this thing, and they're building everything around the axle. Spicer comes through on September 15th, and the axle's delivered. They put the whole thing together over the next six days, and they finish on September 21st, 1940. Okay? They push the vehicle out of the factory, and Carl Probst had this. He said, someone said, get a Kodak. And they all lined up around it and took a picture of it. Which is featured prominently on the covers of all three books. Okay, the first Jeep, the, and, the, and they said, "What are we going to call it?" Like that, they don't even know what they're going to call it, right? And because the cavalry was involved and stuff like that, they decided to call it the Bantam Reconnaissance Car, the BRC. It wasn't known as a Jeep, yeah. So it's called the Bantam Reconnaissance Car. So they literally have one day to test this thing. Okay, they just built it, right? So they test the thing on September twenty second. They all load up. They, uh, Ralph Turner drives it. Some other people get, get in the Jeep, one person in the other seat and in the back, and they have a car following, and they drive it down to Camp Holabird and pull through the gates of Camp Holabird, like I think I mentioned, on September 23rd, 1940, the 49th day at 4.30 p.m., which was a half an hour before the 5 p.m. deadline. Can't make that up. No. Okay? Can't make that up. It's like, great movie, but haven't had that made yet. So that's an amazing story. I got the photographs of how they built it, um, the stories from Hempling, Ted, uh, Chris, uh, Turner, a little bit from Probst of what they were doing to build it. Some from Frank Fenn a little bit, who was the president of American Bantam. So, again, great detail on each one of these segments that I'm mentioning as we got to the first Jeep of what was going on. All right. Yeah. so. I think our interview is about an hour, right? So I make sure well,
0: I finish. I, it's ish. give or take. Yeah. Sometimes oh, it goes, right, okay. I, listen, I've had ones that are like two hours. I've had a right, We won't go that long, but
1: <laughs> I, can, I can keep it short. So now the Army now has a vehicle, right? So you've gone from June, May 1940, where you had nothing, to December 23rd, 1940, where you have a vehicle built on an Army base ready to be tested. Now, this is the amazing thing, right? Bannon builds this vehicle. They barely get it done in time, right? And they're not going to deliver it to someone that's like, you know, we're going to treat this with kid gloves. We'll take it easy on it. We'll see how it goes. No, they're going to try to break it in the testing. Okay? And what's amazing, I can sum up the testing really quick. I have stories from the testing, and we'll talk about the weight in the testing right now. And the Bannon reconnaissance car bent, but they couldn't break it. And they loved it. And I found three, the three test reports on the Banner reconnaissance car. They're in the books, the actual documents, how they tested it, what they tested it, photographs from the testing, all that type of stuff. And that's on the books. And what I love about the testing is, um, so here's how they decided to wait. They're testing it one day and, the, and they got a cavalry general and an infantry general in, in the Jeep, right, at, at Holabird during the testing. And the thing gets stuck. And the guy says, "I think the cavalry general and Carl Probst was there with Charles Payne." And the guy looks at him and says, "How much does this weigh?" So Probst, being Probst, starts into some explanation about how this is gonna, you know, they're gonna do this and that to get the weight down. And Payne's kind of like, "Yeah, you know, shh, I'm not gonna really talk about it." So the cavalry general looks at the infantry general and says, "You know, if the, if the two of us can lift this out of this where we're stuck, weight's good to go." They get behind a the vehicle. They lift it up, pull it out of where it's stuck. Weight's good. Don't care how much it weighs. And the Bannermick Constance car weighed about 1,800 pounds. The two people could lift up the back and get it out. So there is the scientific, exceptionally detailed, exceptionally objective way of how they decided that the weight was okay for the Bannermick Constance car. <laughs> the two generals just lifted out of a bog. Ah, go, Here again. You know, can't make that up. Love it. All right, so now- good stuff.
0: Let me ask you, so was this an answer, the Germans had Volkswagen at the time? Wasn't that their version of it?
1: They had the thing called the Kubelwagen. Yes. But it was not anywhere near as dynamic as a Jeep. Okay. The Jeep was designed from the ground up to be the versatile, rugged, do-anything vehicle. The Kubelwagen was a good car, it could get around, but I don't think it had the cross-country ability of the Jeep had with four-wheel drive, et cetera, et cetera, so was good. The where they were more mechanized is they had the tanks. Yeah. They had the planes. They had the um and 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 using the tanks with infantry, that's what I was up And the planes in close support. That never been done before. You know, Blitzkrieg. Yeah, the Blitzkrieg. So so that ends the first third of early Jeep history, October night two forty of the BRC. I can briefly go into the next third and there's just so many twists and turns. It's only really a melodrama. Yeah. All right. I love this part of the story. Okay, you ready? Because I get to do a godfather imitation, all right? <laughs> Hopefully, it'll be good for you. So Willis, remember Willis? Yes. They did not get the first bid, right? right? Oh, so Bantam's accepted, and they tell Bantam, you can build 70 more. The quartermaster, which I don't think is really official policy, they met with Willis on July 23rd, 24th, and they told Willis, you know what? We're really wonderful people here in the Army. And if you want to build your own prototype at your own expense, we'll be really nice. And I, we, we, we might just take a look at it. Okay. So it's like an offer that they couldn't refuse. Like, you know, if you want to build your own vehicle at your own expense, feel free. We'll take a look at it. So Willis did it. They built their own vehicle. They named it the Willis Quad. And they delivered it on uh, November 13th, 1940.
0: Does Bantam know this is going on? Or? No, they okay.
1: had no idea To October 1940, and that's we'll get to that. Uh, starting into the second part of early Jeep history, which we'll just give a quick overview of it, which yeah. is detailed in, in the books. So Willis delivers. So in October, the, the quartermaster just decides, you know what? Yeah, we should get someone else involved too. Doesn't tell Banham, doesn't tell Willis. The, the quartermaster calls up Ford and says, hey, come on down. We, we, we got something for you. And they asked them to build a prototype. And Ford says, sure. They shared a lot of information. There's a lot of back and forth about, all oh, these Bantam's stuff was stolen. I don't really feel that way. Though A lot of this was public knowledge and stuff like that. They maybe looked at the BRC. But basically, Ford was able to build a prototype in about six weeks from early October 1940. And they delivered their Ford prototype called the Ford Pygmy on November 23rd, 1940. So now... By the end of November 1940, the Army has three prototypes in place. But here's the thing. After they got done continuing on with the exceptionally well-organized procurement that we're talking about here, the quartermaster comes up, and they now they have banner prototypes been accepted. They know Willis is coming and know Ford's coming. They don't have any idea what they want to do next. So the short version is they go, you know what? We'll just have everybody build 500. Okay, first off, the problem with that is you're not supposed to order a contract at the time until a company has a proven and accepted prototype. They haven't even delivered their prototypes, Wilson Ford, and are offering them 500 each, right? So Bantam protests. It turns into this huge soap opera. It goes up to the highest levels of the government. So one gentleman, the adjunct general, he says, no, Bantam's going to get a $1,500 contract, and these other two are not going to get anything until their prototypes are accepted. Within days of that, through political maneuvering and all the other stuff that happens in bureaucracy, right, because this is your tax dollars at work, they decide, eh, everybody gets 1500 <laughs> Sounds, $1, right. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. So by early December 1940, in the second part of the early Jeep history, which I detailed, Bantam, Willis, and Quad have, all have contracts for 1500 with Willis and Ford's contracts dependent upon if their prototypes are accepted, right? So Ford's prototype was really good. Their prototypes accepted in early January. Boom. Bantam's already building their 1500. Ford, good. You're good to go. You can build your 1500. The Willis Quad, which was an excellent Jeep, truly, but it failed the testing, primarily around their weight and their engine, which we won't go into detail. Well, Jay, there was another whole bunch of memos and things like that, which have documented in the books. And miraculously, even though they were overweight, the thing had failed the testing Actually, by that early February, Willis was again reinstated and said, you know what? I got to tell a story. The quarter They're failing. The quartermaster's own committee said, no way. This doesn't work. They have to go back and fix it. The second in command of the quartermaster wrote a memo, which I include in the book, to the decision makers above him fighting for Willis. Now, where does that happen? You have an army general fighting to keep a manufacturer in a procurement that they're not really supposed to be in. Well, guess what? It went through a whole bunch of machinations, went up to the top of command. They said, you know what? Yeah, Willis doesn't have to change anything. The Willis Quads accepted and knock yourself out. So they get their 1500 contract. So that's the second time Willis was almost knocked out of the procurement near death that they were resurrected. Okay. And just finishing that line of thought, Willis, to their credit, they they were really good. All three of these companies were amazingly good. They went back and took all the stuff that the army told them they had to fix, They kept their more powerful engine. They got the weight down to like it needed to be 2,160 pounds. They finally came up with that later on. You know, after all the whole thing. Yeah, I won't even bore you with that. Oh, yeah, it's not going to weight there. They got to like 2,159 pounds, and they called their new vehicle, which they had redesigned by May, the Willis MA, okay? And that was an excellent Jeep, okay? Now, you won't get the answer to this probably, but I'll give you the first part. So the, the their initial vehicle is called the Willis Quad because of four wheel drive, right? So when they created their, they retooled this thing so much they decided to give it a new name. So they chose military for M for military, and why do you think they chose the letter A? It's so simple you won't get it. Automobile? <laughs> no, it's the first letter of the alphabet. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's the first letter of the alphabet. So it's a military vehicle. It's a military vehicle. It's the first version. And there's going to be a reason why I'm bringing this up. It's the first version. So we'll just call it the Willis MN. Boom. Done. <laughs> Love that. There's a reason I'm bringing that up because it, it it goes into something very famous later on. So through all this melodrama and what they did in 1941, I think I can go through the end of the story because it's not yeah. that much. And then we can you know we can, we, uh, ask questions and stuff like that. So what happened was they had the three, they're building the 1500, the army shipped them all over the country to be tested. In July, they decided, you know what, we're ready to go, even though the testing's not done, we're going out, winner take all contract for 16,000. So they've gone from, we need 70 to 16,000 a year. And it was basically two weeks after uh, Hitler invaded Russia that they went out for this contract. So long story short, they put the contract out, Bantam bids, Willis bids, Ford's bids, and they come back and they go, oh, the quartermaster writes this memo, what you have in the original Jeeps and pictures, because that's the only one that goes to the end of 1941. Uh, Ford wins the contract. It really goes up to that gentleman by the name of Bill Knudsen. And he had been an ex-Ford employee before he went to GM. He didn't like Henry Ford at all, mm-hmm. I believe. And he gets it and goes, you know what, quartermaster? no. Willis has the best vehicle at the lowest price. Willis gets the 16,000 contract. So there's the third time Willis almost gets out of the, gets, get, doesn't win it, right? Yeah. So here's what happens, which goes from the Willis MA story. The Army asked for a whole bunch of more changes between August 1940 and toward November of 1941. They made so many changes, they decided to call it the second version. So they called the Willis MB. Yes, that's how you got the Willis MV name for the war, which they built 360,000 of. So I get to do my last godfather imitation. You ready? So they come down to November of 41, and the army knows this is going to be big, right? And they says, we need a second procure. So they go to Willis, and they go, this is their second godfather. Like, you know, Willis, we got another offer for you. We think that you should allow Ford to build your vehicle under license because we need a second supplier. What do you think of that? And Willis said, you know, I don't want a horse's head in my bed. So we're really happy to allow license our Willis MB to Ford and Ford built two hundred seventy seven thousand. And they called their 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 second vehicle. They called the Ford GP, which wasn't chosen. So when they built the 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 Willis vehicle under license for the war, they called it the GPW. The G stood for general. The P stood for a wheelbase of under eight under 80 inches. So GP and W for GP Willis. So that's how you got before GP Willis. You know, we don't want a horse's head. So we'll just we're happy to have the second procure. I love that. It's like, <laughs> yeah, hey, what do you think, Willis? <laughs> yeah, sure. Sounds good. Yeah. So that's kind of the overview of early Jeep history. There's a lot of twists and turns, details. I go up only in detail to March, May 1941 in the original Jeeps. The original Jeeps and Pictures goes to the beginning of the war, so it covers the sixteen thousand contract. I'm thinking about doing a second edition to the original Jeeps and try to include all the detail of you know what happened in 1941, like I have for the detail for the first three, to show how you got the BRC40, the Willis M A, the Willis M B, and the um, you know the Ford GPW.
0: So how many of that these? That makes sense. So how many of these are produced before we we enter the war? Because you're you're all the way up to November 41, right? And now you're a month – well, you're less than a month away probably in some cases of uh, Pearl Harbor.
1: Yeah, they produced at least 5,000 before the war. Willis might have been building the MB after they got the 16,000 contract, but not a lot. They eventually – this goes to your point you made earlier, tooling up. By the time they tooled up for the war, and at the end of the war, they built almost 600,000 of them, just Jeeps, between the two manufacturers, which is remarkable. Yeah, so. it's, it's unbelievable.
0: Just the mechanization in general, how fast everything happened. I, I mean, I watched, what was it, World War Two in color? I don't know if you've seen yeah, that Yeah, on good.
1: Yeah, that's a good – I've seen that one. Yeah,
0: and you watch them trying to hold off the Pacific, and it's like, we don't even know if these missiles – these missiles are going to work that we're dropping into the water. Um, well, it was, the well, torpedoes it was terrible. I'm
1: sorry. Yeah, well, meandering, Bo, that was an absolutely perfect point. The torpedoes we had at the beginning of the war, probably through mid late 43, there was a captain named uh, Mush Morton. They didn't work. Yeah. And they kept coming back to the Navy, typical, right? You got the guys at you know, base. The commanders are out in the field going, These torpedoes don't work. And they kept saying, No, it must be your tactics and you didn't shoot it right and this and that. Finally, Morton showed them that these fuses didn't explode when the torpedo hit and they finally fixed it. So for the literally first eight, nine months of the war, our submarine captains are completely handicapped against the Japanese sinking their ships because torpedoes don't work right.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it was something like 80% of
1: them failed. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Um, but. The Jeep went on to hit history. So that's kind of the early Jeep history. There's just so much melodrama. So what happened was my late wife and I through 2011, we simply weren't able to get a movie made. So we talked about it and she supported every so much of what I did. I couldn't I couldn't say enough good things about my late wife if we had, you know, three days of interview time. Yeah. So she said, why don't we write a book? So that's how the first book came about. And I dedicated it to her and people that are in the early Jeep and you haven't asked me this question yet. So I'll answer it. Cause everybody will ask me this question. You'll, you'll get it. You'll love this. The next one is everybody has that gets into this Jeep stuff, gets into it. And I was at the Bantam Jeep heritage festival in Butler this past year. And some say hey, a Jeep stands for just empty every pocket. Okay. Cause you just get into it. It's like an addiction. And people always say to me, do you own a Jeep? I go, I'm not really not an outdoor kind of guy, that kind of thing. You know, I can't fix anything either. I'm also not outdoorsy. It's like, what do you do that's actually useful? Pretty much nothing but write about <laughs> Jeeps. Um, I tell them my passion, where I just empty every pocket, is writing, reading, writing, and studying the early Jeep history. Yeah. And that's that's where I'm at. Oh, so we decided to write the first book. And gets getting addicted to the whole thing, I just keep digging and digging and finding more and finding more. Write yeah. the second book. And then finally say, you know, I need to make this more accessible for the third book. And we did. And I want to mention while it com- uh, comes up, and none of this would have happened with my wife and my publisher, Manuel Max Friedman. The guy is just the best, incredible publisher. It's just, And it's just me and him. It's just he's one guy. Like, I oh, always talking about, yeah, I talked to my publisher today. And I go, it's just one guy. But he's one fantastic guy. He yeah. designed all three covers for the books, put them all together, published them. So I want to give him a huge plug because without my wife, uh, myself, and Manuel Max Friedman, there wouldn't be these books. Yeah. And I'm so indebted to him. And, and the cover for the third book, the original Jeeps and Pictures, this first two were outstanding. The third one, it's in this emerald green. Every single person I've seen has is, is, is co- talked about it. It's just it's just at another level beyond outstanding. So big kudos to Max. Uh, hopefully, he'll give me you know pay me my you know hundred bucks plug money when it when I talk to him <laughs> next. <laughs> so that's kind of the story. So turn it over to you. Questions? Thoughts that came in your head? Yeah. So let me go back to some. Did you ever actually write a
0: screenplay, or did you just pitch it as a
1: as a? Oh book? my God, we wrote so many different versions of the screenplay, and what happened is my wife and I tried to. Sell it to Hollywood. I got so many stories there. It's like incredible, right? No success, no success. I wrote, we wrote other screenplays in history, actually won some contests, won awards and contests, blah, blah. Talk to Chrysler, talk to these people, blah, blah, blah. That's a whole other story. We won't go in the screenplay. That's how I met Max is he's a movie producer and a screenwriter. And so we met him in 2006. He saw it. We pitched him. He loved it. And he tried to sell it and still couldn't sell it. We still can't sell it. See, for me, real quickly, I got to give you this. This is my pitch, right? Whoever's owned the Jeep brand forever, because of this whole thing that happened between Bantam, Ford, and Willis, the Jeep brand does not really recognize that Bantam built the first Jeep. Ah. Okay, so here you have this miraculous story of how your product came about. Okay, and they don't want to tell it. And I'm the only person in the world that could come up with you had one of the best stories of all time about one of the most famous vehicles. La 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 make a great movie oh uh, yeah we don't want to tell that story about panic i i've tilted more windmills than don quixote on this right but here was my here's my pitch i'm like the chrysler i'm like are you kidding me see yeah. i have an nba marketing i go this is the greatest marketing thing of all time yeah. you make this movie right it's literally a two-hour infomercial for your product and people will then go pay to see it yeah yeah they'll go pay to see it. and it's like i can't convince anybody damler chrysler Fiat Chrysler, Cerebus, Stellantis, you name it, or whatever brand they're under, can't convince them. And and still to this day, if you go to Jeep.com, they don't talk about the Bantam Jeep. They start with the Willis Jeep. And why that happened is you had all that acrimony during the war. It's like 80 years later, it's like, we need to bring these people together. And the Jeeps are built in Toledo. And Butler does now market itself correctly as the birthplace of the Jeep. Okay, And that's correct. It was kind of birthed there. But… Toledo markets themselves absolutely correctly as the home of the Jeep. Mm -hmm. Something can be birthed somewhere and find a home somewhere else. And that's really what happened. They both have a story to tell. They're both exceptionally valuable stories. But we wanted to tell the story because only in a movie about Bantam, you know, and the birth of the Jeep and how the first Jeep came about. And like I said, it'd be a two-hour commercial. You could put posters in the dealerships. You could sell contests to go to the set, you could give out CDs. Someone takes a test. Drive. You could do so much marketing around this whole movie and then people go pay for it. And like I went to Ford versus Ferrari, which was an excellent movie. The Jeep story was, is even more incredible. I was
0: that. thinking about that movie as you're talking yeah, yeah, about Yeah, exactly.
1: So there you go. And it's a very, very similar movie, very similar story. And I just couldn't convince them that this was a marketing bonanza for you to create a two-hour infomercial to go to 3,000 screens. And, do- and then it goes worldwide.
0: Yeah, you know? I actually think it would be an interesting story to tell in like five or six parts, like on the Hulu or one of these these like stations. Uh, obviously, Netflix is kind of tanking at this point, but I feel like you you could tell that whole story, and in almost like a long form narrative, and it would be a really interesting story.
1: Jay, this is why I'm paying you the big bucks. Yeah, well, okay? thank you for that. Because you're just leading into my next other way to do this. Exactly. You know, by the way, we scripted all this out, Jay's listeners, so he so we could get this point in. Okay, that's completely not true. But – I gave you my – You're exactly up. right. So I watched these <laughs> – so big screen, if you wanted to do it, Ford versus Ferrari, you can talk about the first one. But as you saw, early Jeep history is in those three parts. Yeah. The History Channel did two fantastic, I mean, top-notch documentaries on Washington, one on Washington, one on Grant – and each one of them was three parts, two hours. And that's mm-hmm. exactly correct. You could take two hours for each third of the early Jeep history story, mm-hmm. you know, end of World War I, to October 1940, act blah, 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 and tell it that way too. Yeah,
0: that's the and way I picture it. Three
1: part, two hour, could do it. You know, I've got to tilt at windmills till I, I no longer can. I'm still going to say it would still make a good movie for the big screen, but I would settle for a three-part documentary at the level they did for Washington and Grant, which were exceptional documentaries. Uh, and the way they told uh, the Grant and um, uh, Washington story is they had experts talking about what was going on. And then they had recreations back in the history. Yeah. And it was just so good to see. They're like, Washington was this green guy. And he went out and the, and fought the battle at, around Pittsburgh. It wasn't always Pittsburgh. It was a French fort at the time. And then they literally have it reenacted, Yeah. you know, where they're fighting the thing and he's out there and it, with the Washington actor. So I would I would most assuredly take either way. Would, both would be powerful ways to tell the story. And what would be good about the documentary is you could tell the Willis story and the Ford story along with it and the complete early Jeep history story in the three-part documentary.
0: Yeah, that's what I picture it being. Yeah. So actually CNN did a good – I don't know if you ever saw they did a documentary about Lincoln. It was like five – Episodes, but it, it it was done very well, and I think they were all in like, yeah. two hours. So
1: that's a lot. Yeah, I'll take were, the it three two hours, and we're good to go.
0: <laughs> I hear you. <ya. laughs> no, that's interesting. I hope it happens one day, though. That's something comes from that because I think that, like I said, that would be especially for the way World War Two and the lead up has been covered in history. There's just they're dying for something new to it. You know, a new. Let Michael. me just
1: read. Let me just read these quotes from the early Jeep and pictures. Okay, right at the end, mm-hmm. this is talk about the Willis M. B., which we talk about. They evolved the version we talked about. General George C. Marshall, who was involved in procurement, the chief of staff who authorized the Jeep procurement, would say that the Jeep represented "quote America's greatest contribution to modern warfare." Unquote. Dwight Eisenhower pictured leader of D-Day and uh, future president, regarded the Jeep as one of the five pieces of equipment most vital to success in Africa and Europe, and really in Pacific. So doing a documentary on a, a piece of equipment that was vital, not only to winning World War II at that level, seems like it, it would be a great way to honor that history, so on and so forth, The how it came about, the origins, and literally the miraculous, amazing series of events that any one of which, which went a different way you might not have had exactly what the jeep that we got. Yeah. So pretty nice.
0: Um, what was the impetus for it? We just we saw what Germany was doing, and we knew at some point we needed to be, you know, it's almost like a, an arms race at that point. You're militarizing.
1: Well, well, they saw what Germany was doing, but throughout the late 30s, the experts in the Army, like Colonel Oseth and at the Cavalry and stuff like that, and again, I document that in both the first two books, they knew they needed a vehicle, and they were trying everything, and they just couldn't find anything. So by ninety four they still needed knew they needed a vehicle. They just didn't have any idea how they were going to get it. And then as we just detailed through this interview, starting with the meeting with Oseth and Payne, that's how they got the vehicle. But they knew they needed something, and, and funding started to loosen up in the late 30s as the German threat came in. So there was more money going toward the military, but you can't create military power immediately. It takes time. So, this was just one piece of the puzzle, but it was a huge piece of the puzzle that, but it really came from the impetus that the using arms of the Army, especially the infantry and cavalry, knew they needed the vehicle by just this whole set of circumstances that we talked about. They got it. And they not only got it, they got a legend. Maybe one of the, maybe arguably the greatest, most virtuos, versatile vehicle ever created. And one where how many vehicles created 80 years ago are still running around being made new? To this day, yeah. Maybe the Ford Mustang is close because that came in the mid nineteen sixties. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. So that's just kudos to the Jeep legacy and the all the men. It was pretty much men at that time, obviously, of American Bannum, of Willis Overland, and of Ford that made this happen in nineteen forty 1940 and nineteen forty-one. When did that start getting sold to the public? Oh, great question. So at the end of the war, short version is Ford says, "Thank you very much. We're done building Jeeps." And Willis tried to sell Jeeps after the war. They did okay, but Willis didn't do well as a company. They were bought out by a firm called Kaiser. Kaiser retired the Willis name. And all the Willis history is detailed in the second book, the Blue Book, and Summit, the original Jeeps and the original Jeeps and pictures. And then the the joke about the Jeep brand is it's like this jinx. Literally almost every 10 years since literally World War II, it's been bought out by somebody. So Kaiser decides to retire the Willis name from the Jeep world in 1963 and called the Kaiser Jeep. They get bought out by a company called American Motors, okay, mm-hmm. which I know from my youth, okay, back in the day, the 70s. American Motors doesn't do well. Chrysler buys a Jeep brand for American Motors. Well, we don't what happened to the Chrysler. They went bankrupt. Lee Iacocca, the whole thing, right? So Daimler comes in in the late 80s, uh, late 90s, I think. They do all sorts of things. Chrysler goes bankrupt again. The Jeep brand still doing great. Everything else is not doing great. And I love this one. They went through that whole reorganization in the 210s. Cerebus Capital Management. That's a car company. So they did that for a year. Jeep brand then goes. They finally formed the Fiat Chrysler Corporation, FCA, mm-hmm. brought in a guy named Ashione, I think if I pronounced that right. He was a real car guy. He got FCA back on the right track. Well, oh, of course, 10 years later, someone has to buy the Jeep brand. So FCA decides to merge with Peugeot, and now it's called Stellantis. So somewhere, that was like maybe 2020. So by 2030, the Jeep brand's got to go somewhere else. we are going to keep the streak alive. <laughs> but it's just been owned by so many different companies. But throughout that whole legacy, they just keep building the great vehicle. Didn't matter who owned yeah. it. Because the DNA, what I like to say, is the DNA of the Jeep is really from those first seven, which are on the original Jeeps and Pitchers. And those gentlemen from both Bantam, with Ford and Willis, that built the first ones, they, these guys were good. They were they were just geniuses at all three companies. They could they could build anything. What happened to so those just, three guys afterwards? Well, the, well the, the Bantam people did not get the credit they deserved. Uh, so Chris Turner and Hemphling, they all lived to their old ages. And I got a picture of Chester Hempfling and when he was older, holding the tin snips where he cut the hood for the first Jeep. Uh, the Willis people just continued to work and the Ford people just continued to work. The, the most famous person in Willis was a guy named Delmar Ruse. And this was the other thing that I loved. Right. So you got these guys that are really not a lot of famous when they deposed them at the trial. They asked them for their background. So I got a nice two page background on Delmar Ruse that's published nowhere else of what this guy had done up to the time where he got involved with the Jeep. Same with Turner, same with Chris, same for Hempfling, and same for the other gentlemen from Ford, so on and so forth. So I I just feel bad. I mean, Willis gets appropriately its fame. Ford gets its fame to its point about built the Jeeps. But I've always felt bad for the Banta people, especially the four people that we mentioned, Chris, Turner, Hempfling, and Propes gets some. But those other three that they've never really gotten the credit for really putting their DNA into the Jeep, into the very first one. And at least my books are some small attempt to give them the credit they deserved, along with the most justifiable uh, credit for Willis and Ford.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's an amazing story. Like I said, I'd never heard it. And a guy who you just figured you'd run into it. Is there any other stories that you have in you besides jeep that you're you're thinking about taking a deep dive into
1: not really at this point Mm -hmm. um if i took another deep dive i I really would want to finish the second edition of the original jeeps to get the detail for the last third then after that i mean i wrote we wrote all these screenplays because they're historical i wrote one about i called the curse of the titanic it's about halifax nova scotia because people don't realize there's titanic dead buried in halifax Okay, of course not, because it's not a story that gets told. Well, what happened was meandering here real quick when the Titanic went down, you see the end where they're all floating in the at the end of Titanic by James Cameron. They're all floating in the ocean. Right. Well, they're still floating there. So the White Star Line hired this company out of Halifax. That was the closest to the disaster area. They hired a ship called the McKay Bennett. And the McKay Bennett went out there and pulled out 300 bodies from the water literally weeks later. And they brought them back. Some of them buried at sea and others they brought back and buried at Halifax. Well, six years later, December 6th, 1917, two ships collided in Halifax Harbor. One of them caught on fire. The problem with the one that caught on fire, it was a munition ship. It blew up and killed 6,000 people. So I wrote a whole story around between the Titanic sinking, the Titanic body recovery and the what they call a Halifax explosion, which was literally the largest, greatest man-made explosion before the atomic age. All right. And I weave the story around it. So I would love to see some of the screenplays that my wife and I did, which is pretty much probably Whistling Dixie. Um, you know, I wouldn't mind getting back into that and seeing some of those made, because some of the stories were very powerful. We wrote a story about the first African-American who made the rank of Colonel in uh, the United States army, a guy named Charles Young, mm-hmm. a very, very talented man. Wrote another story about a guy named Alexander Georgine who literally hiked his way out of the Soviet Union in 1979 across northern Finland. One of the greatest human endurance stories of all time. We call it uh, The Fugitive Meets Castaway. No one's ever heard of Alexander Georgine. This guy's he's still alive. He was 26 in 1979, so he's pushed to 70, but he was a physicist. And if you Google Alexander Georgine, it's J-O-U-R-I-N-E. His name comes up with physics papers he did after he made it to the West. So there's just – that would be nice. Book-wise, I don't know. If I do the second edition of the Jeep History, I guess I'll wait to see what inspiration hits. But that that's really the only thing on the table is to really complete that third part up to the level I've done for the first two-thirds and we'll go from there. Yeah. So one miracle at a time, as I used to say when that's I was working. It. That's it. Well, this
0: is really cool, and I really uh, appreciate you coming on. Like I said, I was excited for this one because it's a story that, that's not out there. So we like – interesting stuff on this show so i really do appreciate it i'm going to check out the book and maybe we'll we'll chat again afterwards.
1: one last thing blatant plug section books are available at amazon.com you can check out our website originaljeeps.com we haven't updated it for the original jeeps and pictures but there's a lot of good information there originaljeeps.com we have a facebook page the original jeeps where we post each week. Right now, we're posting a, a photograph each week from the original Jeeps and pictures. So there's three ways you can check us out if someone wants. And uh, the books are available exclusively at Amazon. And obviously, it's the the original Jeeps and pictures is the current one. The original Jeeps is the blue book. I would if I was someone, I had to take a lot of the material from Project Management History, the first Jeep, and put it in the original Jeeps. So if I was someone that wanted the full story, I would just buy the original Jeeps and the original Jeeps and pictures. Not that I'm trying not to get sales, but I don't want people to buy something that are like, well, this is the same thing. If someone has a, an interest to what extras in the, the history project manager book and would like to see the story told from a project manager perspective, then buy the, buy the first book. Okay. But if people really just say, I want the detail as much as you have in the picture book to give me an overview, buy the original Jeeps. And the original jeeps and pictures, and you're good to go all right well all right thank you jay i appreciate your yeah, time thank
0: you it was a learning experience and i was really Sometimes happy to uh, get to hear the story
1: thumbs up appreciate it thanks for having me on and best of luck all right. same to you thanks
0: thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen the With Jay Berg Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcast, or go directly to JayBergShow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon. the pool.